Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. If you have a Bible, please open it to 2 Corinthians. We're busy preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. We went through 1 Corinthians and the series was called Lessons from a Messy Church and it really was fairly messy. Um, and now we're looking at a maturing church, lessons from a maturing church, and we're already finishing chapter 6 today. And so I'm going to read the text from verse 14, and then we'll get to work. We're actually going to be covering verse 14 through to chapter 7, verse 1. It forms one homiletical unit, and so verse 1 um, actually is part and parcel of the last few verses of chapter 6. Am I moving over for the online? Ah, I'm in the way of the slides. There's a reason for Okay. There are other people watching. (laughs) Verse 14. Here we go. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share With an unbeliever, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, historically, the church has got themselves into knots over this particular issue of being unequally yoked. Historically, there is a graveyard of examples, bad examples, of how the church has applied this particular text. There have been some extremist positions, and in most cases, quite embarrassing. We will consider some of them as we get to the end of this message. Some of these words have been twisted They've been the grounds for separating families, for shunning friends, uh, for breaking up marriages, and for tearing apart businesses. And so what I want to do is I want to deal with the text. What does God have to say to us? This is God's word to us. And then we're going to draw out some applications. And so we're going to consider it three ways. We're going to consider the commandment, the command, the confirmation, And the conclusion. So firstly, the command. The command is very clear. However, we need to interpret it. The command is verse 14. Do not, there's the command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, before we hear what Paul is saying, let's just rule out what he's not saying, right? He is not commanding Christians to withdraw from the world altogether. He's not saying that. We know that because 
we must apply Scripture with Scripture. So the first rule of interpretation, here's a commandment. How do we apply this? Well, we compare Scripture with Scripture. And when we go to all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, we find that we are actually called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're actually called to be salt and light to the world, that we actually to have contact with the world. How does salt actually have an effect if it's not making contact? It has to make contact in order to preserve. And so there is a lot of other scripture that bears significance onto this particular text. And the very commission of Jesus himself is to go into all the world and make disciples. Where must we go? Into the world, to the nations, to make disciples. And as the Father sent Jesus, so he sends us, the church, Listen to what Jesus says here in John 17, verse 15 through to 18. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So we've got to consider that in light of do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We, we can't run to an extremist position because Jesus says, I do not. That's his prayer. This is his high, high priestly prayer. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So there is something Jesus is after here, the same as what Paul is describing. And then he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So there is a particular manner, a particular way in which Christians are to be in the world with unbelievers. So what does Paul have in mind then when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, with the world? So let's consider the first part, unequally yoked. This is not a, a new term. Paul hasn't invented this term. This is a reference to the Old Testament. Paul was steeped in Old Testament law and uh, scripture. And so he's referring here to Deuteronomy 22 verse 10, where we read this. Do not, another commandment, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. And so it was very practical. And the practical provides way into a principle. And so the practice here was that you would not bind together, the yoke being a, a piece of wood that would cross the backs or the shoulders of these two beasts, these two animals, and, and what we ought to imagine here is an inconsistency in terms of strength and nature. There is an inconsistency between an ox and a donkey. Just imagine for a minute one of those great big African bulls plowing a field alongside Eeyore. Right? How can they possibly work together? One of them is a massive beast and the other is scarcely as big as a Great Dane. What's the point? The point here is two different natures, two different strengths, two different capabilities. So the picture from the practical to the principle is not just of association. That's not what he's after. It's not just associate. It's not don't associate with them. Be scared. No, none of that. The, the, the strength here is around the binding together of two completely different natures towards a common purpose. 
So it's two completely different natures with a common purpose. Those facts are important. So that's the first thing, unequally yoked. Then he says with unbelievers. So what has Paul got in mind? Does he have just everyone else other than Christians? Well, we need to do a little bit of homework here. Most commentators agree that what Paul initially has in mind here is a specific situation related to the church in Corinth. Let's remember he's writing to the Corinthians. And and the Corinthian had a problem. The Corinthian church had a massive problem in the midst of the city. And there's no doubt that he is referencing 1 Corinthians, where we have many situations where the the people in the church were going to worship at pagan temples. And so although there was a church in Corinth, there was too much of Corinth still in the church. And so Paul has this in mind, that, that, that some of the members of the church were engaging in outside religious practices. And so the primary concern here, the primary concern, the primary commandment is actually that all other religious practices do not mix with Christianity. There can be no partnership between Christianity, Christian worship, and other religious systems. They do not mix. And so his primary concern of not being yoked together with unbelievers is firstly spiritual and not spatial. Let me say that again. It's not about proximity. It's about engagement. It's spiritual, not necessarily spatial. However, when we consider as Christians our lives, we know that all of life is spiritual, right? We, we do not separate. We do not compartmentalize our lives into, hey, this is my spiritual life, and then this is my practical life. No, that's not Christianity. Christianity is a, is a holistic worldview. We live our whole lives under the authority of God and for the glory of God, and so all of life is worship. And so if this is primarily spiritual and not spatial, then there are implications for all of life. How then are we to apply this warning? How are we then to apply this caution? How are we to apply this? Well, actually what Paul is saying is you need to apply to all your relationships. And there is some fantastic wisdom here. And this is where it gets a bit more tricky. Because we need to apply it to our lives. We need to apply it to our relationships. And some of the most important relationships are where we need to consider this most. For example, marriage. Marriage. I think we could say that to interpret this accurately, Paul would be arguing that it is inconsistent for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. It is inconsistent, and it is extremely unwise. In fact, we would also then compare Scripture with Scripture, as we should. And we know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that marriage is to be only done in the Lord. So we've got other Scripture that could bear witness to this, that actually what Paul is arguing for here is that we shouldn't even date or move towards marriage or get married if one person is a believer and the other is an unbeliever. Because that is being unequally yoked. 
It's, it's two different natures moving towards a common goal, and it doesn't work. Now, if you are already married, and one is a Christian and one is a non-Christian, this is not the grounds for divorce. Paul actually argues in 1 Corinthians 7 that you are to stay married. The other area that we could apply this to, and it's also very important relationally, is our work lives, our business lives. And, and this gets even more complicated. Is, is he forbidding or condemning any business relations with non, non-Christians? And I would say no, he's not forbidding that. However, I think he's asking for wisdom and caution when you go into partnership with someone who doesn't hold the same ethics and values that you do. Two different natures moving towards the same common goal. Are you equally yoked? So get insight, get wisdom on these issues. So, so the principle, the, from the practice to the principle, from the old to the new, Paul is using an Old Testament practice, pulling it into the new, and he's baptizing it under Christ, and he's saying to the church, in terms of our relationships, all of life is spiritual. In terms of your, your dealings at work, at home, whether it's work or home, whatever it might be, unite yourself with people of the same nature. Fellowship with people of the same nature. Because your common goal is to bring glory to God. So the principle and the commandment is this. Do not enter into a relationship, a binding relationship, where there is an unequal nature to yours. Avoid partnerships and unions that will compromise your Christian integrity. Or weaken your faith or even cast a shadow on your Christian witness. Now, how do we know this to be true? We've we've already applied a lot. Well, here's the confirmation. Paul knows that this is fairly controversial. So look what he does next. He gives us examples. The confirmation, we read on, and it says, for what partnership? All right, now we've got a word, unequally yoked. It has to do with partnerships. Interesting. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. By the way, Belial is a Greek term for the worthless one, meaning Satan. So Paul starts in verse 14 by contrasting two radical extremes, righteousness and lawlessness. I mean, you you, you couldn't get more extreme. The righteousness of God, the one who fulfills the law, and lawlessness. What have they got in common, Paul says? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. He goes on, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Darkness and light have no fellowship, right? They don't hang out together. They are opposites. They are contrasts. The one always banishes the other. That is its nature. 
Verse 15, what accord, what union has Christ with the worthless one, with Satan? In other words, what is the relationship between Jesus and old Satan? Is it kind of, you know, are there occasional bouts of infatuation? Do they sing choruses together? No, there is no harmony whatsoever between them. One sings to the glory of God, the other one sings about himself. Verse 15, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? In other words, personal compatibility. Yes, we share the image of God. Believer and unbeliever, we share, we are both made in the image of God. However, the portion he's describing here is that we do not have a common love for Christ. And if we do not have a common love for Christ, then we do not have a submission to the Bible. And so we do not share a common foundation, and we're not going to be pulling towards a common goal. One builds on the rock, and the other one builds on sand. It just can't work. You see, Paul's heart here is to save us heartache, to save us from brokenness, to save us. In verse 16, he goes, he says, What agreement then has the temple of God with idols? And he he has the image of the Old Testament temple here, and then he brings it into the new covenant and says, For we are the temple of the living God. You see, Paul is viewing all of life as worship. Why? Because we are the temples of the living God. Your life, your body, your soul, all of who you are is a temple. And if Jesus is the idol of your heart, then he displaces all other idols. So in each of these five examples... Paul is backing up and underpinning his argument that there can be no partnership and no yoking together. And he gives five illustrations. Now, what's his conclusion? Well, we read on. He then quotes a promise from the Old Testament. It's interesting how saturated this passage is with Old Testament imagery. He then says, And God said... I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The picture here is of the Israel, the newly formed nation, God's people Israel, newly formed in God's place, under God's authority, and with other nations around them. And God's concern is that they mustn't become like the nations. They need to stay distinct. They need to stay God's people. So he says to them, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. But you know what the problem is? The problem is they didn't do that, right? He he commanded them, and they couldn't do it because, well, it just looked good. The other nations looked great, and they they had idols, and they had gods, and they had prostitutes, and they had all sorts of things. And so what did the people of God do? They actually went after those things. 
And so how, how, how then, how are we going to do this? Well, he, he goes on in verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What Paul assumes here is that the promise has already been fulfilled, and it wasn't Israel that fulfilled it. It was Israel's son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He came to be the true and better Adam, to be the true and better Abraham, to be the true and better David, to be the true and better Israel. And so he's our example. He is our supreme example. We do not look to Israel because they, they stumbled over this. We do not look to any other prophet or priest. No, no, we look to Jesus the Messiah. And Paul's conclusion is, since therefore we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. His argument here is from the lesser to the greater. So the best way to interpret do not be unequally yoked is to consider all of those illustrations, all of those examples, but actually to land on Jesus. He's the supreme example. He's the supreme witness. And I want to hold this before us as a church because we can get ourselves into knots just like church history got themselves into knots. Paul is calling us to holiness. But what is holiness? Holiness is not a position. Necessarily, it is a person. Jesus. Jesus. Friend of sinners. Wow, that puts a spanner in the works. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Jesus, friend of sinners? Gosh, how do we imply this? What's going on here? I thought I shouldn't be friends with sinners. No, no. Jesus could be where people were without being who they were. We need to be where people are without being who they are. You see, because we have a new identity, Jesus has fulfilled the law. Jesus, the true and better Israel, has already cleansed the temple and established a new one. It's called the church, the living temple. And we too need to be a cleansed people, a distinct people. We do need to come out. We do need to be separate but be careful of preaching holiness and practicing isolation. We are separated unto God, but we need to be salt and light. We need to get this right, church. The pursuit of holiness is actually the pursuit of Christ-likeness. He's our supreme example. Because, here's why, because as a Christian, you are yoked firstly to Christ. Come to me, he says, Matthew 11. Come to me, be yoked with me. That's what he says. Take my yoke upon yourself. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yoke yourself with Jesus. In other words, that's where it starts. So, let's Finish with a couple of interesting applications and analysis. Throughout history, we've had the monastic mentality. The monastic mentality 
uh, is a fancy word for the monks. We, we know a little bit about the monks and that what they chose to do to fulfill these commands and, and these kind of endeavors is to completely withdraw from society. Just in order to just stay God's people, what we need to do is run, right? Run and hide. Now, there was some godly pursuit there. I don't want to throw them all under the same truck. But what became of it, what started probably as a wonderful thing to set yourself apart, became a retreat from culture, a retreating from culture. You go and live your life on your own in a cave or on a mountain. Forget about the rest of the world. That's not what we do. We, we can be monastic in our devotion, but we need to be on mission, right? So we don't want to be monastic. We don't want to take on a monastic mentality, but neither do we want to be Christian fundamentalists. They need to put a bit more fun back into their fundamentalism. Christian fundamentalism, I think for me, was highlighted in the, in the 80s. I became a Christian around the end of the 80s, and it was a spillover into the 90s, where you only buy your house from a Christian estate agent, right? And you only live next door to Christian neighbors. And you only buy cars from Christian dealers. And you only get your insurance from a Christian insurance broker. And you only buy your meat from a Christian butcher. And we go on, and we go on, and we go on. You see, the mentality here is that we've got to combat the culture. The monastics retreated from culture, but the fundamentalists, they try and convert culture. And all we end up doing is living in a Christian ghetto. And we stroke each other's egos. Look how good we are. And then unshamely, and, and unfortunately this is pretty strong today in our current cultural moment, is the Christian liberalism. When they're not combating culture and they're not trying to convert culture, in fact, their strategy is consume the culture. Let's just become like the people. And you can hardly tell the difference between some Christians and the world. It's like, well, are you or aren't you a Christian? I mean, just look at how you live. Look at how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you raise your kids. What are your pursuits, your dreams, your entertainment, your leisure? Actually, there is no difference between you and the world. And this is a serious problem in the church today. This is the church mirroring the world. It's like there is no contrast anymore. And to that particular group, Jesus wants to say to you, you need to come out. Separate yourselves. Stop blending in. You need to stand out, find your voice, and glorify God, no matter what the cost. And so my submission to us, and I think there's been some application all the way through, but lastly, is that we should adopt a missionary mentality, that we ought to be missionary members of Christ. We are sent into the world. We're not combating the world. We're not consuming the world. We're going to be Christ-like in the world. We're going to be faithful to the content of Scripture. We're going to be faithful to the context in which God's put us in. We're going to be like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus said that's what the church must be, a city 
within the city. We, we live in the city of Port Elizabeth, but the church is its own city. We have our own identity. We are a city within the city. We are a city on a hill. They must see it. We are the city of God. And so we don't consume culture and we don't try and convert the culture or combat the culture. No, no, we need Christ-like courage to infiltrate and engage the culture. And so I close with verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The only way that's true is if Christ is in your heart. We, Christian, you, Christian, if Christ is in you, you are a temple of the living God. Wherever you go, you are the image bearer. You are the image bearer of Christ to the nation, to the city, to the neighbors. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Don't put a basket on it. Don't run and hide. But be distinct. Don't dim the lamp. Shine, even if it costs you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for speaking to us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that takes the written word and applies it to our hearts. Lord, we pray for wisdom to apply these truths. We pray for wisdom to be corrected where we've been wrong. We pray for courage to be bold where we've been timid. Lord, we really want to pray that you would help us to navigate what it means to be in the world but not of the world. Thank you that we have an opportunity here to be a city within the city. We thank you that, Jesus, you are the center of our hearts and lives. And for that reason, we are the temples of God. And you walk amongst us and in us. Your presence dwells with us. The holiness of God is close. May we not defile the temple. I pray, Lord, that we'd be sensitive to sin. I pray, Lord, that we would be sensitive to partnering with things we shouldn't be partnering with, to fellowshipping with things we should not be fellowshipping with, that we'd be sensitive to participating, to, to engaging in activities and practices that we as the temple should not be engaging in. Help us to shine. We don't want to run away, no. But we, we also don't want to dim our lamps, Lord. We want to shine brightly for Jesus. And so we need you. We need courage. In our current cultural context, we need lots of courage to speak up for the truth. Strengthen us, Lord, we pray. 
in your name.